Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 34 of the Rogado Podcast, a show featuring academics, authors, artists, and people who challenge the way we think and how to take action. In this season, we've been looking at the ways that our cultural viewpoints, our church traditions, and personal experiences impact our view of the Bible. And today, we're going to take a step back. And instead of looking at the Bible through our own personal experiences, we're going to learn how ancient Judeans thought about their God in comparison with the other gods in the ancient Near East. In this podcast, we're honored to learn from Dr. Dalit Rome Shaloni about how ancient Judeans wrote and transmitted their stories, how monotheism and polytheism impacted ancient Hebrew people, why they used anthropomorphic language to describe God, how Israel's God Yahweh was similar to other ancient Near East gods, and why the Israelites portrayed Yahweh as warrior and involved in their personal lives. Dr. Delete Rome Shaloni also discusses ways that the ancient Judeans protested and lamented against God, especially amid times of pain, suffering, and destruction, which is a subject featured in her brand new book entitled Voices from the Ruins, The Odyssey, and the Fall of Jerusalem in the Hebrew Bible. Dr. Delete Rome Shaloni is professor of Hebrew Bible at Tel Aviv University. She writes extensively on Hebrew Bible theology, group identity conflicts, and the formation of 6th century BCE literature. As always, you can get notes from today's podcast, watch the video clips, and get links to her brand new book at mikedogato.org. Here's our conversation. Dr. Delete, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Mike. Mm -hmm. I'm glad to be with you. I wanted to ask you about what got you started on focusing on studying ancient Judean literature? Well, um, you know, this has been many years before, <laughs> but I can I can still uh, recall. I mean, it's uh, uh, it, I should say it is a cultural, um, very deep cultural issue um, in my, let's say, Israeli identity. I grew up in a non-religious family. And myself, I'm a non-religious person. Um, um, but I was, I mean, the Bible, the Hebrew Bible was part of the Israeli Zionist um, culture that I grew upon. So um, it was early in the 80s uh, of the previous uh, century that I decided that this is the most interesting thing for me to to study, it took several years before I focused on uh, on Hebrew Bible theology, which is a specific uh, subfield uh, field in the biblical studies. But uh, but yes, it it has been most fascinating for me for many years now. When you were like deciding on a major and a focus area back in college, what were some other areas that you were interested in? Because you chose you know, very ancient Judean literature. But I'm curious about other areas you're also fascinated by. Well, when I came to the university, I was already um, prepared for this topic because just before I went to the university, I worked on a very special place, uh, which is a nature reserve in Israel called Neot Kedumim in the Modi'in area. And uh, it's a special nature reserve that works on nature, um, on, biblical, let's say, biblical landscapes. Uh, and it's a botanical garden that adjoins all the plants. Um, later on, they added animals, uh, mentioned in the Bible. And so, and I was in my early 20s working there. And so when I came to the university, I knew that I wanted to study Hebrew Bible and ancient Semitic languages. It was already final. It was. <laughs> so That's awesome. I came to study these. Yeah. So what do we know about um, the ancient Judeans? Like, I'm really curious about how they wrote, how they passed along stories. That's something I'm, I have no clue, like how stories were transmitted during that time. Well, um. This is one of the questions that scholars are also uh, debating upon, uh, but uh, <clears throat> but it definitely is uh, one of the major 
um, questions we try to understand more. Um, and um, the problem is with the biblical literature and actually with all the cultures that live, let's say, west of the Jordan River on the what is called the Levant, is that the ancient materials uh, of writing were on leather or on papyrus, and the two materials cannot sustain the uh, the climate uh, unless, and this is the bre- the greatest achievement uh, um, um, that that we enjoy, is that uh, those materials could. Um, remain in desert in very dry climate and this is why we all enjoy the Dead Sea Scrolls and all the other findings uh, including papyrus so in, in other places in the land of Israel and mainly in Jerusalem where we assume most of the biblical literature was written and collected to um, there, were, there are no ancient remains and so the question of how things were written and copied and transmitted is really something that our ability as scholars to learn about it is from other ancient archives in the ancient Near East where um, the, the written materials were, um, were not exposable. Uh, so, uh, so to your question, <laughs> we have only when it comes to the Hebrew Bible, we um, have some clues within the biblical literature that we can learn from, but mostly we assume that that this um, that the Hebrew Bible um, holds traditions that were uh, transmitted first orally and over time re- in written format and. Um, and that on a long process, they came to be what we now read in the Bible. Mm. Uh, these are, yeah, in most, um, uh, most of the processes are processes we, uh, we have to assume. Uh, and nevertheless, we do have traces, and I would even say quite a lot of traces to validate the fact that this is an ancient culture and ancient um, um, ancient text. And I, and I guess like what's other, the other complicated thing is like, mm-hmm. is knowing like who could actually read. And so I'm curious about mm-hmm. like, and it's very interesting to me as I think about the, from what I know about the Judean people and the Israelites, about the groups of people, the Levites or those that were in charge of kind of writing things down mm-hmm. and then communicating um, those texts to the people. And I'm curious about like, those group of people, do we know anything about those people who were like the writers, the people who were transmitting this information to the people? And also, like how that might relate to other ancient cultures at the time. Did those cultures also have like a Levitical tribe? Yeah. And if um, and at least they would have uh, scribal circles that are um, responsible to uh, writing, writing traditions, writing other material sources. Yeah, um, we know, and uh, again, we are um, in in a complicated situation. There is no um, um, no findings, no real findings of um, uh, school of scribes within Israel, uh, but still, we know about scribal schools or schools for scribes in the ancient Near East and. Uh, and we try to learn from from that. Uh, there are a lot of um, quite new um, uh, um, studies done on this issue of scribal um, uh, scribal culture or scribal circles and their work. And and this is really uh, of interest. The the kind of um interesting thing and kind of um riddles you have to uh to find out is that you have to to look at the materials that you have in the bible and to see how can you um find kind of remnants of scribal activity within this um literature which is now in a 
of course, edited format. And you have to, to be very sensitive to trying to understand what, uh, uh, what could be the stages of growth of the literature. But this is, this is complicated. It is complicated. Yeah. And also, it's really fascinating to me about, um, as you've studied this, like how the transmission process happened. And you talked about like how complicated it is, like trying to understand, um, by looking at other parts of the world too, how ancient uh-huh. cultures wrote things down and, and copied them. Do we have any idea, um, by looking at older manuscripts about how well things were copied? Or do you find a lot of discrepancies? Between the copies. Well, this is this is a great question, and uh, and the um, and there are, first of all, the thing is to understand that we have a variety of possible answers to your question. So it's really and and the, the thing that we uh, still do not know uh, is to um, know the actual um, thoughts of or practices of accuracy. In, uh, back in the ancient period, we do have a lot, and this is very important, uh, um, um, important finding that we do have a lot of information in the, um, Dead Sea Scrolls of scribal practices. Uh, but this goes to the second century BCE, and my interest is with the sixth century BCE. Uh, so, so we have, and we do have, we can go even uh, one century earlier to the third century BCE uh, with the Greek translation of the, of the Bible and uh, learn a bit more about uh, scribal practices and the way things were copied or, if you'd like, the different uh, textual traditions of the Bible. At that period, um, as of let's say the third century BCE and on. Uh, but again, if, uh, uh, if I as a scholar and other colleagues are interested in earlier periods, then we all are in a big trouble exactly on this issue, whether uh, there was, um, an understanding or even, uh, um, an ideology of having a one text of a Bible, uh, kind of a unified Bible, or the opposite could be just uh, uh, as true that uh, people thought, people already had the idea of a kind of um, a sacred or authorized um, compositions that they held, but not necessarily would they think that they that the text should be very precise, and so you may find kind of paraphrases too, uh, or you can find kind of nuances in the um, in the text. So uh, all those um, options are actually recorded on the. Um, the text found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, and when you compare the what we later know as the Masoretic text, the Hebrew text of the Bible, to the um, to the Septuagint or to the four, what we call the forelag of the the Septuagint, the the um, uh, Hebrew at the background of the uh, of the um, Greek translation. So when you do all this work, you you may see that there is a growth over the last centuries. Uh, there is a growth of kind of uniformity <clears throat> that actually goes much uh, more, much stronger with the Masoretic text. Uh, but it was definitely on the on the last centuries of before the Common Era, uh, there was no one precise, accurate Bible. That's <laughs> the textual information that we have clearly shows that uh, there was no one text. Um, but, you know, when you take all the things together, when you put all the um, information together, the differences 
in many of the books are fairly minor. So it, it really is a matter of, of uh, the half, the half glass can, whether it's full or empty. Um, when, when you compare, I mean, this is the known, uh, information is that, uh, when you compare the Masoretic text, the Hebrew text and the Septuagint, overall, you get 85% of similarity. So we're talking actually about the 15%, which, you know, is it, is it a lot or is it minor <laughs> issue? Well, it depends on the books. There are books that the differences are much major. Uh, and, and in, so they could go up to 20% of difference. Um, and there are books that, that the, uh, textual tradition is fairly similar. So it's, uh, it's, it's, um, it's really a major question. There are scholars who cannot go over it and say, okay, when you, when we're talking about biblical literature, we cannot go as far as um, the 6th or the 5th centuries because we don't have actual texts of that time. Uh, I'm on another, <laughs> on the other side. I mean, I recognize that we don't have the actual text, uh, but I do think that since we uh, can see in the Hebrew Bible, in, in the different um, books, because it's, a, it's a, as you know, it's a literature that has developed over centuries of time. Since we can see um, layers of literary growth, uh, it is clear to me from my studies uh, that um, gradually there has been a growth of knowledge of uh, reading and writing of, uh, gradually of com compiling, uh, literary compositions. Most of the, uh, of this process has begun around the eight or seven centuries BCE already. And even though I cannot hold an, an ancient text as those early, uh, periods, I can uh, definitely see, and I am trying to show in my studies, that uh, prophets, for instance, or poets, or historiographers that worked over the seventh, late 7th century and definitely early 6th century BCE had already access to, um, to traditions, maybe even to actual texts, that they could already um, know, even read and reuse. So I'm I, I'm applying um, methodologies of intertextuality to um, and mostly allusion and you know what is called inner biblical um, exegesis to uh, to present the um, use of other traditions which I cannot guarantee that they were similar to the written Bible we are all holding, but they were fairly accurate. They use specific terminologies. They know the concepts. So voices or speakers or um, lit different literary circles, as of, I would be sure to say as of uh, the late 7th century BCE, had already access to former uh, biblical traditions. This is a search. I mean, <laughs> the research is to, to actually um, find uh, enough evidence to say such uh, or such claims and to prove them. This is, this is a challenge. <laughs> But it's, I think it's a pos it's a possible assignment, let's say. Yeah, you, uh, I'm just taking notes here. Um, uh -huh. so my first question is, I love you talked about like the growth in composition. And I'm curious about what were those things that you see kind of evolving in this ancient biblical literature? And then at what point do you think that these ancient people believed that this was sacred text? You know, what point? 
right? As as this text is evolving, these histories are growing. At what point do you think that this history, these texts became sacred? Mm-hmm. Well, this is, it goes, I'm trying to think on, it goes quite early. So I think that already with the uh, prophets of the 8th century, we can, I can mention Hosea or Amos uh, and others. Uh, so it, it really is the mid-8th century BCE that we can find that they already know um, former traditions. Like Hosea uh, talks about the Jacob traditions in Genesis. Uh, and I would never, of course, claim that he held the book of Genesis. I do not <laughs> try even to say so because there is no evidence for that. But um, but uh, prophecies within the book of Hosea definitely know the stories about the patronym Jacob and uh, and they work. So the interesting thing is that this prophet of the mid 8th century can speak to his people at his period uh, in Israel, in the northern kingdom. Um, and he can admonish them for being the descendants of that Jacob. And mm. so he ha- could draw the connection, the, draw the analogies between that ancient patronym who the people of Israel refer to and the way, the, the present, his contemporary generation that he is now addressing and mostly in a very fierce way. So these kinds of, of connections um, tell uh, quite a lot about, um, about um, a people or a culture that retains its past traditions, be they um, the um, uh, forefather stories in Genesis or uh, Amos talks about uh, issues of covenant, the covenant between God and the people of Israel. So they could uh, use um, different traditions, be they literary or legal, and use them to their current messages. Okay? They do not, the thing that is uh, quite tricky, they were not Bible interpreters. They had no interest in explaining or in uh, trying to um, to teach the traditions concerning Jacob or the legal traditions of these or that corpus within uh, the Pentateuchal materials. They, I don't think that this was their aim. Uh, what they wanted to be was to prophesy to um, to maybe the closest would be to speak in a sermon like to their audiences and uh, the issue of uh, referring to earlier traditions was part of the rhetoric now if you take that as an option the um, this could this can work I mean this kind of rhetorical device could work if you assume that their audiences were also familiar with the stories. So to your earlier question about uh, about the question, who could be speaking to, who could be audiences, who could be writers, who could be, I don't know to say, and I definitely cannot quantify the numbers of people that could be as knowledgeable that uh, if you understand the biblical literature as a literature that has a kind of uh, handling a discourse that goes back to earlier traditions that talks about familiarity with uh, legal and with literary traditions, then you have to assume that um, this or that profit for the matter um, assumed that his audiences will understand what he's saying. Otherwise, why would he? 
uh, refer to Jacob when he's talking to a people that have no sense of that earlier tradition. So uh, I think that this methodology of, of looking at intertextual phases of the biblical literature opened up, at least for me, opened up this literature to understand that, that it's, um, it's a culture that um, is based on um, knowledge of quite a lot of uh, earlier traditions and of uh, a culture that is interested in reusing it. So this is one of the things I'm very much fascinated about, how they reused earlier traditions. And, um, and it becomes very interesting uh, on both ends. It's interesting if you're interested in, in the growth of the Pentateuchal literature, and it's just as well interesting to see how uh, later generations reuse time and again. It's not a one process. We use time and again uh, earlier traditions to their own current needs. So it's really, uh, I mean, talking about the biblical literature as a living literature, this is something you can really see. <laughs> oh, that's so interesting. What What are some of the interesting traditions that you see kind of woven into biblical texts? Because I'm thinking, as you're, as you're talking about ancient mm -hmm. traditions, I'm thinking about like the flood stories and the flood narratives mm -hmm. that are passed around from different cultures. I'm curious about like what are some of these ancient traditions and stories that are kind of been incorporated into these ancient biblical texts? Well, they're, they're really, I mean, this is uh, fascinating to look and trace. And you can there work on, on quite a wide range of traditions. Uh, you mentioned the flood stories. So we do have, and, and this is, I mean, scholar, biblical scholars uh, are very much interested in, in tracing ancient Near Eastern traditions that we can speak about kind of a milieu, cultural milieu of the uh, ancient Near East uh, broadly, okay, it's, um, um, studies are, of course, much more specific and can speak about connections to Egyptians traditions or connections to Mesopotamian traditions or to Hittite. So, but generally you can speak of knowledge of, um, um, of a general knowledge of traditions that, uh, Israelites, um, both in the Northern Kingdom and in Judah, were exposed to. The next question that scholars would ask is how and where and when were they exposed to those traditions? Was it something that Israelites in Israel still, so still when the uh, two kingdoms or the latest one was Judah, Still existing in its place in Judah, were they exposed to those extra biblical traditions uh, still on that early period, or could they be exposed to those traditions only after the deportation um, um, deportation waves uh, of the eighth and then of the sixth century? This will be a question. This will be a debate. But uh, but this is really uh, the, the the I think we are getting more and more to understanding and 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 that on that front archaeological evidence is helpful uh, to see that uh, that Israelites and Judahites were exposed to um, extra biblical traditions already. Within the first half of the uh, of the first millennium BCE, um, they were more even, uh, let's say, uh, facing those traditions when uh, the Judeans were exiled to to Babylon. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's this is this opens another very wide circle of the ancient Near East and. Uh, and people uh, were familiar with um, with outer uh, and and other religions. Okay, the the um, and and this is really very interesting to see. Um, 
I've been um, interested in conceptions of God, and uh, and uh, and it's it's fascinating to see how biblical authors could um, form, let's say, the um, the monotheistic beliefs in God uh, while being very, I think, deeply knowledgeable of other religions. And uh, so so it's not that they, um, and this is a general uh, understanding that we can say on many respects of the biblical literature, it doesn't seem to be a literature of a people segregated in their, uh, uh, in their own barriers of their culture. Uh, I think that biblical literature in many respects shows uh, familiarity with the, um, with the world, the cultural world surrounding. Um, and it, of course, it differs. I mean, it's, uh, there are compositions that are um, much more open to other um, um, cultures. Uh, there are uh, compositions. I can mention like the book of Deuteronomy, which is very particular in its um, kind of wanting to structure a, an Israelite segregated culture. But this same book is very much familiar with so many other cultures, legal traditions, religious traditions. So it's it it plays kind of very complicated um, game, let's say, with what it takes from the other cultures and what it holds as uh, as its own uh, Yahovistic uh, religion, uh, and this makes it very interesting. It's um, it's a kind yeah. of um, of a combination, uh, and and it, it, the combination is is. A major issue that allows authors to build their own identity. So, if you uh, if you really want to appreciate in a very deep way the way the Israelite religion has evolved and developed, uh, the more you would know about the other cultures around the more you will appreciate the way the um, Israelite religion had grown on that background. So this is why we uh, we ourselves as biblical scholars and we take our students to, to this search of learning the Bible on its ancient Near Eastern uh, background. It's, it's really essential. It's, uh, it's something that, uh, that allows us to be much more... Um, um deeply um learning the the biblical text it's uh that's beautiful that's beautiful and as you're chatting about uh how different cultures influenced the ancient Judean people uh, and you mentioned like this conception of God and who God is and certainly uh during this period we know that there were many different gods that were believed in right and even the Hebrew texts tell us about Baal and different deities, right? Mm-hmm. And so I was curious about like the question over polytheism versus monotheism and the ancient people as they were developing these texts, because obviously you read about these other deities that other tribes believed in. And when you kind of look at the ancient Judean people, were they were they polytheists and then eventually moved to monotheism? I, or were they monotheists all along and they always just didn't believe that there were other gods that were truly other gods out there? Uh, I'm, I'm curious on your perspective on this. I don't, I don't know if this is the right question to be asking. Well, yeah, it is. It's a very good question to be asking. And it's a very complicated way to answer. Uh, I can try to do it very simply and then we'll see if we want to complicate it more. Um, the simple thing to say is that the biblical literature, and we are working with the Bible. I mean, this is what we are having. And we can, of course, add um, evidences from the material culture that were exposed over um, in uh, archaeological um, uh, expeditions. And, uh, and we can uh, know, of course, and add, and we should, 
add the literary evidence from the ancient Near East. When you take all this evidence together, you still have to realize that the biblical literature, let's say the authors of this literature, are monotheistic. And here I'm just giving a very simple answer concerning the authors of the literature. So when you read the Bible, you really get the impression that everyone is on a very clear and strict uh, understanding of uh, a monotheistic religion. Okay? There's only one God and you have to, and to, to be completely obedient to that one God and there are no other gods. But as much as you read that there are no other gods, you understand that this is a very polemical sentence okay? of lo iyu elohim acherim al panay, okay? The, what we have in the uh, in the, ten, the the opening of the Ten Commandments. It's uh, you are not allowed to have any other gods, which means there are other gods. I mean, <laughs> and there are other gods not only for other nations. There are other gods also for the people, the Judean people. And we know that. It's not, it's not a matter of estimation. We can uh, know that, for instance, from even Jeremiah, who is a prophet of the late 7th, early 6th century. So it's very relatively late, towards the end of the uh, Judean state, the Judean kingdom. Uh, and he um, admonishes the people of Jerusalem that they do. It's not that they do not believe in Yahweh, in the God of Israel. They do, but they add to him other gods. So they are syncretistic in their way of working, of worshiping. Um, and so they do not just hold the um, absolute unity of one God. They try to bring in others. And this is for Jeremiah, of course, is a great sin. And he can uh, um, say that for this disobedience, the kingdom will be uh, destroyed. So it's a great threat, which now, okay, now we can learn about it. So we can say that even at the end of the 7th, early 6th century BCE, there was a clear demand to be completely obedient to the one God of Israel. And just as well, there is a clear understanding that Judeans worshipped more than just the one God of Israel. Uh, so this is the more complicated <laughs> answer. Uh, and so, but it, it, it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't uh, diminish the fact that the literature, the people who we read in the Bible are very, um, at time, at times very, um, uh, with great efforts, I should say, uh, tried to, to, um, teach, to write about, to repeat the um, the ideology or the theology of a one God, but they had uh, they had very uh, <laughs> very difficult time to <laughs> to uh, to make it uh, the major the major line of thought. But they they never gave it up. I mean, they tried hard, and they uh, eventually they succeeded. So I would uh, to answer. Maybe I should add only one thing that to that uh, it's when we're at least to my mind thinking about monotheism is something that grows over time, and there has been throughout. It's not it's not something that you can say they were uh, polytheistic up until the ninth or the eighth or the I don't know seventh century, and and then they moved into monotheism. I would more uh, than that say that. This was a, uh, an issue under debate within the Israelite and the Judean uh, communities throughout. And, uh, and uh, it was, it was a very fierce uh, conflict 
through through the periods. It was not it was not an easy issue, um, but it's it's very interesting to see how in different um, biblical compositions you really uh, can trace the way authors negotiate the conceptions of God and form this monotheistic place of of uh, this one God of Israel. It's uh, it's you, you can see the difficulty of what they face in doing it. Yeah, that, that's like super, super helpful. And I can see like it is super complicated <laughs> as yeah, you were describing it. It's, it's interesting. Um, and you, as you're talking about like this evolution of who God is, how God, how the conception of God evolved as you study like ancient cultures and their beliefs in God how that kind of mirrors ancient Judeans picture of mm-hmm. God and kind of like, and how that kind of, was there a constant mirror between Israel's God and these other cultures? How are they similar? How are they different? Okay. I think that in many, in many respects, the God of Israel is very similar to other gods uh, in the ancient Near East, mainly to the major gods. Okay, if you look at the, um, the Babylonian god Marduk, uh, the uh, Assyrian god Assur, and and others, um, um, and specific gods, <laughs> even in lower rank. The major issue with the god of Israel is that he was one. Okay, so <laughs> and uh, uh, I, I mean, at least on the from the perspective of the authors that we find in the biblical literature. Uh, they had this challenge that, uh, that, um, on the one hand, they were clearly, um, thinking that God was involved in their personal and national life, which means he controlled the history. He was the lord of history, as we say. He was the warrior. He was accompanying the king on his wars and the people in their uh, wanderings and wherever. Uh, so this was one very clear understanding. Uh, but um, on the other hand, he had also to control all other aspects of life. He was the one who is responsible for the rain, for the um, growing, uh, for the growth of of vegetation of of food uh to supply his people uh he was the one who is responsible for fertility you cannot just give it give this authority to a different god because there is no other god so when you again we're again going back to monotheism if you want to create a one god he needs to have all those responsibilities and this is this is beautiful. I mean, this is something that you have to tie together and still hold uh, this God to be the um, higher rank that does everything. There is no hierarchy of other gods. And you cannot, when you face a distress, you cannot say, okay, I'm continuing with my uh, favorite God. And there was, you know, a kind of... Uh, of um of what of a <laughs> of a other side of of uh, a god as had become on the zoroastrian uh, religion and 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 other places you cannot just divide the responsibility and say okay this was not my god who created this evil thing uh when you uh hold to a monotheistic religion this is the god and he does everything. Uh, and it's great when, when you are on the victorious side and when, uh, you know, life smiles to you, then, uh, it's easy, it's easy to, to be pious to that God. Uh, and it's much more difficult when it's time of distress and you don't have any other God to blame or to say, uh, <laughs> I will, you know, I will hold this or that God responsible for my distress. I will leave the benefit part 
and the salvation to my other uh, God. This is not uh, an option for for biblical authors. And this is where uh, where the uh, Israelite religion uh, becomes very interesting on the background of the ancient Near East, because this is where it differs, and it needs to find ways to um, to describe God um, as holding all the responsibilities of the different aspects of life. And on top of that, in the Israelite religion, it was, uh, as we all know, it was a religion that did not have, did not symbolize God in any uh, iconic way. So uh, biblical authors really had, um, you know, a challenge over a challenge. It's not only that he is one, you cannot even make an idol of of him, uh, you cannot present him in in a, in a, um, let's say in a um, material way. Although, and this is why I'm <laughs> struggling with picking the words, because on the other hand, I mean, with with this um, uh, command not to make an idol of God. There is still a prevalent uh, way of speaking about God in the Hebrew Bible uh, in a very anthropomorphic way. So you do not draw or sculpture an idol of God, but you talk about him and to him in a very anthropomorphic way. Uh, and you portray, since he is the God of, uh, he is, of, of course, um, mostly uh, metaphorized as a king, as the highest rank of humans. So the metaphors of God uh, very much are centralized around the image of a king and this is where the warrior uh, um, role comes, fits in, because one of the major, if not the most important role of a king is being a warrior for his people. And so God gets this role, this major role of being a warrior. And of course, his people would like him to be the warrior who saves them, who goes uh, in front of their armies, who uh, holds the hands of the king, who gives the weapons in the hands of the king, who uh, is securing their um, their wealth, their lives, their sitting in their land. All this is a major role of God, but there are other roles as well that are of under the roles of a king, like being the major judge, the highest uh, highest judge. So God here is required to be um, to be fighting again. We're combining the two things, or at least being the one who demands or who guarantees the safety of his uh, pious servants, be they individuals or the nation as a whole. Uh, as if he was the uh, highest uh, judge in the Supreme Court, uh, who is uh, who is protecting his uh, servant that is now afflicted by any other enemies. Uh, so uh, when you look at that, you see that God is uh, metaphorized in those different. Um, Metaphors, uh, but not only on metaphors of God as King. Um, uh, there are others, other metaphors, very interesting, even even of non-human metaphors, like uh, you would uh, metaphorize God as a rock. He is a very stable um, stuff and <laughs> a rock uh, that again protects um, individuals or the nation. Or he can be um, he can be a lion, 
Uh, and uh, so he can be an eagle um, that uh, uh, that can take his people in or on, under or in or above <laughs> his wings. It depends how you want to <laughs> to uh, see that uh, metaphor. So there are quite a variety of metaphors. Most of them are humans, are metaphors of humans that are portrayed uh, to uh, explain the way God handles his people and even beyond human metaphors. And the actual thing is that it's um, the, the language is a language that uh, is taken to, um, to allow the talk to and about God. Because when you are not able to, um, to draw or to sculpture the way God looks like the only thing you need you can or you need to do is to complement that in words and uh, and this is where the issue of metaphor comes to be so uh, important in the biblical literature it allows uh, author biblical authors to to speak about god even when they do not portray him um materially or figuratively yeah that is so helpful. And I know we're up our hour, um, but I, I had one more question. Um, mm-hmm. As you were chatting about the different metaphors and specifically the metaphor of God as warrior and uh, ancient Judeans presenting a very warlike deity, a very mm-hmm. powerful God. Um, when I, I guess the, the question I have is that I struggle sometimes when reading the commands of God to destroy different people, for example, the Canaanites, mm-hmm. and you read the descriptions of, of God telling ancient Israel to go and destroy everybody in mm-hmm. Canaan. As you read those stories, it's like in me, with my modern mind, when I read this story, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so horrifying mm-hmm. what God is telling Israel to do. Mm-hmm. As you read this as an academic, uh, as a scholar, I'm kind of curious like how you read that and mm-hmm. how ancient Judean people like understood God to be because I'm like horrified by it <laughs> yeah well uh, in many in many places and in many texts in the Hebrew Bible God is horrifying and uh, he was uh, very much horrifying to his people and uh, and to others uh, I think that um, the way to read those texts is to always put them in the historical context that they were um, composed in uh, and for the audience that they were written. They were not written for you and me uh, or for other um, contemporary modern readers. Um, and they were written in a very different um, society or cultural um, context. And this is the way people spoke on the first millennium BCE in the area of the Levant and the ancient Near East. Uh, And once you understand that uh, wars um, were events where the gods were involved, this is a general ancient Near Eastern concept and probably much beyond the ancient Near East, but I'm speaking about that. Uh, so the uh, the roles that God plays in war in favor of his people and against other against their enemies is quite similar to what you find in other cultures and the way they would speak about how their gods are facing the others <laughs> around them. So in that matter, the biblical literature is not different and it is not extreme uh, on those issues. Uh, One very famous example is that this issue that you mentioned of of the command to destroy the Canaanites is something that we read in the uh, Mesha um, Mesha Stila. Yeah, in the Mesha Stila in Moab, uh, as a command given by Kmosh, the, uh, the Moabite god, to Mesha, the Moabite king, to destroy completely, to 
to uh, culminate the people of Israel. Same word, yeah, of cherim. So it's, uh, and this is uh, still uh, coming from the 9th century BCE in Moab. It's not written in the Bible, but it's the same uh, conception of war in which uh, when you go to war, you expect that your God will do the war for you. And you get, it's not, it's even more interesting because the king needs to have the God on his side. And this um, requires to give justification for war. A king cannot just simply conquer, even the Assyrian king, who were the kings of the world uh, at that at their time. Uh, the kings of Assyria could not just decide that he or they, as general, are now going to create an empire. They, in their wars, they needed to have the divine authority to go to war and uh and and uh there the the another similar issue is that all kings of that those ancient different nations and religions had the understanding that their god is with them in war and therefore when they are victorious it's uh, a great that God was with them in war. Uh, the great um, interest is to, under, to try and understand how would different cultures uh, react to events of, of, um, of being conquered by others, of being not on the side, on the victorious side, but on the side of the defeat. How would then would you explain the role of God? Did he lose his power? Did he desert his people? Did he, I mean, what happened? And, uh, and how would then this nation that was defeated and is now under subjugation, how would it regain any new life after that very Distress, distressful period. Would it be able, would it be able to even survive? <laughs> but then would it be able to continue believing in the same God? Or should it, I mean, if he deserted us, if he lost his powers, why should we continue to believe in him? So these questions are questions that come to, uh, to mind. I would, I mean, we can see it. In minor examples outside the Hebrew Bible, but in much greater way in the Bible, uh, facing the um, the destruction of Judah in the early sixth century BC, and this is really uh, fascinating to follow up on the way different different voices are able to uh, to speak about the decline of Judah and then facing the destruction itself and regaining their um, still continuous uh, belief in God even after they clearly thought he was responsible to their distress, to the destruction. And it's it's uh, very troubling because uh, in the way that the Babylonians conquered Judah, uh, it meant that they conquered the city of God they destroyed the temple of God. They um, expelled the people of God. All the promises uh, to bring the people to its land eternally are now completely out. Uh, the promises to the king of to the uh, house, to the royal house of David, to be to have eternal um, uh, reign over Israel is completely destroyed as well. So it's it's a matter of the, the early 6th century uh, BCE is really a critical point when uh, in many um, dimensions you would think that the people of Israel, the Judeans, uh, should have said, okay, we understood, we had enough, <laughs> 
and we are not going to continue believing in this God who has been the savior from Egypt, but who is now responsible for uh, for our distress, meaning he has become our enemy. And these such a, such claims are expressed in the Hebrew Bible. Um, what I'm very much interested in, and this is what I try to show in the book, is that uh, there, first of all, there is a variety of um, theological uh, reactions to this very um, difficult time. And within this variety, there are voices that, you know, just like the prophets, they would know why it happened. They know, they have the explanations of why it happened. But there are other voices who cannot find answer. And the only thing they can is to um, to present questions of doubt and even to um, express very uh, painful, very deep protests against this God who they want to wake up and be back to to controlling positively their life but this is <laughs> this is not yeah this is this was definitely not obvious for them back then on the early 6th century BC they they searched for answers well uh your your book and your research is just fascinating because you're uncovering so many very deep and difficult questions and like what you just alluded to, like in some of those passages where you read either the psalmist or even Jeremiah or the, the laments or these, like you said, the protests, those are some of the most powerful passages to me. I think about when I'm going through very difficult times, like those are the only scriptures that make sense to me. Uh-huh, really? Uh-huh. Well, that's very nice. You know, this is, this. I think that, I think my... Um, I think I think most powerful lesson for me over studying those texts was uh, was this issue that I found great courage in the way um, uh, biblical authors could speak about God and to God. They are not even speaking about Him. They really on those um, uh, laments, uh, in lamentations, and in selected psalms. Uh, and in um, words that are that the prophets quote from the people, you really find that they speak to God in second person. You are responsible. It's not they, and they just do it very directly and in in great pain. And they are pious. I mean, all the um, the post-biblical, and it happened also in Jewish circles and even more powerfully in Christian circles over the um, centuries beyond the Bible, that protest was diminished, that it was it became not legitimate to speak in this way to God. Uh, but the Bible is free of that. The Bible is, I mean, up to very late compositions within the Bible uh, um, that we do find that there are what we call penitential laments uh, uh, very and very late part of the biblical literature that uh, that try to moderate the uh, the tone and the uh, actual phrasings of of the communal laments and the individual laments, but in earlier periods and mostly, I mean, throughout the biblical literature, it was legitimate to protest. If you had a difficult time, as a pious person, you, this is, I mean, you address God. Who would you address? You are not going to address any other God, and you are not going to be Free of a belief because this is a very religious uh, community uh, and and society. Um, so your alternative is to address God directly and ask Him and pray to Him and and hope that He will hear you and assist. I mean, this is so. Protest is definitely part of the piety of ancient people and. Uh, 
this is the thing I, I learned and I really much appreciate that you can, you can really, um, not, not fear to protest. It's, um, it's part of, of, of the religious negotiation with God. Oh, that's absolutely beautiful. Like, like we just said, um, protesting is part of the piety. Like, that's beautiful. Yeah. And it's very unchristian. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's very, uh, yeah. So this is where I'm as, uh, as a Jewish biblical scholar, I come into this discussion of of theology, uh, of biblical theology, and say uh, that that the Hebrew Bible allows us uh, an earlier phase than what happened later on in both Jewish and uh, Christian uh, in the Christian traditions. That the Bible is a step earlier. And, uh, and a significant one. Well, I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast and sharing your insights about your awesome new book. I can't wait to read it. Um, uh-huh, thank so thank you so much. Thank you very much, Mike. It was a pleasure. And I, I really appreciated all your questions. It was really very interesting for me. Thank you so much for listening to this conversation with Dr. Delete Rome Shaloni about ancient Judean literature and their perspectives on God. You can learn more about this in her brand new book entitled Voices from Ruins, The Odyssey and the Fall of Jerusalem in the Hebrew Bible, which provides a deep analysis on how ancient Judeans thought about God amid their suffering at the hands of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. So how has this conversation on ancient Hebrew literature impacted you? Let me know by messaging me on Instagram, YouTube, or Twitter at Delgado Podcast. You can also reach me on my blog at mikedelgado.org. Next time, we're chatting with Dr. Amy Erickson about her brand new commentary on the book of Jonah. She wrote nearly 500 pages about this four chapter little book. And she describes the fascinating ways that different traditions have looked at the book of Jonah and why it shouldn't be oversimplified into a simple lesson on why we shouldn't run away from God. So that's next time. And if you found this podcast helpful in any way, please let me know by rating the show on iTunes and or leaving a comment. Your vote can help this show get more visibility. Thank you so much. Take care and we'll chat more next time.